Welcome to Coffee and Therapy, where we spill the tea on therapy-related topics, sip our favorite coffee, and share our expertise with parents, professionals, clinicians, and anyone who could benefit from a little therapy. Welcome back to Coffee and Therapy. It is me, Alyssa, and I have Courtney. Hello. <laughs> She's like, do I say something? <laughs> and we have a special guest, Katie Sears. Hello, Katie. Am I saying your last name right? I should have asked before I hit record. Yeah, you've got it. Thanks for like having me. Like the store. <laughs> exactly. Like the old store. Quickly yeah. going away. Doesn't exist. Yeah. So dang. Sad. That's crazy. But they brought Toys R Us back. So, hey, that's a win. That is a big win. Yes. That was a good store. Is a good store. Yes. It's Mm -hmm. coming back. It's coming back. Um, Katie is here tonight. Katie is a friend of the pod, a friend of Courtney. And Katie is a fellow BCBA like Courtney. So I'm going to let Katie talk about herself a little bit. And then we're going to kind of jump into the wild west of ABA and BCBA and where it's going and all of hopefully the good things that are coming and kind of open a dialogue for our listeners about what we, the realities we have in the world and what we can do with them. So I'll let Katie take it away. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. Like you were just saying, I'm a BCBA. I've been in the field for gosh, longer than I want to admit at this point. Um, and have some of that. I call myself a dinosaur in the field because a, oh, lot, gosh. Of BCBAs, <laughs> a lot of BCBAs don't make it. Um, but I've been around the block a couple times and it's really nice for me to think about the difference in ABA when I started, you know, many, many years ago and what that looked like and how that was playing out for all of our clients versus what's going on now. So I'm super, super excited about the direction that our field is going, um, all of the movement that we've made over the past couple of years and what we have still to come. Uh, Currently, I'm in a role just supporting uh, as a regional clinical director in for a bigger ABA company, largely focused on early intervention. And I'm really proud to be with this organization because there's this big push for the future of ABA and compassionate care and ascent-based practices. So that's sort of where I'm at today. I love that. I am so glad that's a push. I think Courtney and I talk about that, but I think a lot of people don't realize that ABA, the field, and for those who are just tuning in and don't know these acronyms, I guess maybe we should say them just in case. Applied Behavioral Analysis. We have an episode called All About Acronyms, if you want to look it up. Um, I would presume people tuning in have heard the word ABA before, but if you haven't, no shame. That's okay. Um, Applied Behavioral Analysis and a BCBA is a board-certified behavior analyst. So they are the ones who usually create the programs and protocols that are implemented within ABA. Um, but it's, I think a lot of people hear things on the internet or read articles about, like you're saying, what ABA was, where it was, and haven't allowed the opportunity for ABA to evolve or asked the questions about, well, how have you changed and what does that look like? So I guess to start for a lot of people listening are parents. What are those questions that maybe they should ask if they're being recommended to an ABA company to understand 
are you implementing these ascent-based practices? Are you more client-centered? Are you more naturalistic? Those kind of things. Yeah, I think that those are the questions, right? So as our, our families are, are thinking about ABA, and specifically our families for kiddos who are just diagnosed as being on the spectrum, you get so much information, right? You leave that appointment with a 40-page report, whatever it is from the, the, usually it's a psychologist, sometimes a developmental pediatrician, whoever gives you the diagnosis. And the recommendation for treatments is sometimes, you know, I, I see a lot of these reports that will recommend full-time ABA. They'll also recommend preschool. They'll also recommend OT, PT, speech, developmental therapy, family guidance, uh, counseling for the family. I can only imagine these families must leave going, which way is up, right? Where do I go to and how do I prioritize? Because the the list of recommendations is so much longer than the hours are in the week. Yeah. And I think it's very natural for folks to turn to friends, peers, the internet, all of those things to try and figure out what's best for their kid. And, you know, that leads to a whole other can of worms with, with the misinformation that's out there on any of those different specialties that are being recommended. But specifically when it comes to ABA, you know, the field is under attack for, uh, you know, a lot of autistic individuals are coming back and older autistic individuals are coming back and saying, you know, my whole childhood felt like work. It felt like I didn't have the autonomy to just be a kid and to have fun and to follow my interests. And my whole world was trying to fit me a square peg into the round world that is the um, neurotypical world. And we're at a point now where ABA has really, the field is shifting. You know, there are definitely people out there who still have this belief that the, that the goal of treatment is to normalize kids. And then there's this, you know, I would say, I would hope, maybe I'm just wishful thinking here, but this other group that I think is quickly becoming the majority of practitioners that are saying, our goal is not to fit a square peg into a round hole and to normalize. And again, I use that word in quotes because there is no such thing as normal. Let's just say that we're all a little weird and that's how it should be. And we love it that way. (laughs) Um, But the large majority of practitioners these days are recognizing that it's not about getting our learners who are on the spectrum or who have any other developmental disability, any other neurodiversity to fit into the neurotypical world. It's about teaching the skills to be successful, teaching self-advocacy, teaching communication skills. So anyway, I rambled on from here. No, no. Um, You know, to, to answer exactly what you asked, when families are looking for ABA and considering where they should go, I think that their biggest question should be, how do I know that you are taking my child's preferences and their happiness into consideration? Mm -hmm. Right. I think I don't want to speak for all parents out there, but I think for the vast majority of parents, our number one goal is for our kids to be happy. Mm -hmm. Right. So within that, I think it's really important that, you know, you could go on a web, you could go on a web search and just look for ABA therapy in whatever your city is. And you might come up with 20 different websites and all the websites have very similar content. And it's not until you see how things are run that you're able to to get the lowdown on how things really go. So, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking through 
what's happening at that age. If your child is young, you know, what does a typical day look like when they're getting ABA? Because if they're really young, my thought would be, what's play-based, right? Mm -hmm. How are we following their interests when you've got that little guy who's obsessed with Sonic the Hedgehog, right? How are we going to incorporate that into our learning? Um, how How are we responding when they're having a hard time? What are we prioritizing? Making sure that the practitioners are on board with what's important to the family, because Mm -hmm. if if the practitioners are really wanting people to push in one area and it's not important to the family, why, right? Why do it? Um, So that would be one, right? Or if it's older kids thinking about, does the model match what what their biggest need is? So For older kids, I see a lot of parents that are looking for ABA for social skills, which is fantastic. You know, a lot of our our learners need some explicit help in that area. And I think it's important to make sure like, yes, this is ABA, but do you have appropriate peers for my kid to make friends with and to socialize Mm -hmm. with, right? Yeah. How do those sessions go? Making sure that it's not this sort of like old school, we're going to sit you down at a table and we're going to drill you for four hours and we're going to use all these flashcards and teach you all of these things that don't translate to real life. It's, you know, how is this going to improve the quality of my child's life, my family's life, and how do I know that it's working? And if you have people that are trying to pull smoke and mirrors to those answers and they can't do it, or they can't say, hey, I've got a family that that would be happy to talk to you about their experience or, you know, I've gotten permission for you to see how this looks back in the center. Like, let's come show you something like that. Someone who's trying to be or a company that's trying to be really elusive about what they're offering and is not upfront about what that looks like. I think that those are some things that would definitely have me questioning if I were making the right choice. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense at my clinic. So I run a music therapy practice and we always do a free consultation, a free group trial for our social groups. And parents are always like, oh, and I'm like, well, you got to see what it is. We got to see if it's the right fit. And it gives both of us the space to say yes to each other or that space to say no to each other. And I think there's a lot of companies that aren't maybe doing that. And hopefully, you know, if you're an ABA company that's looking to grow and maybe improve your practices, I think that's a really good way to be transparent, keep that stakeholder team in mind first and foremost, because that's who our children are going home to. And as you're saying all this, I'm like, yes, Katie, like, yes, this is what we all do. So I guess my like question from there is why is this not the norm kind of an ABA? Because I will be honest, most companies I've interacted with, not all, I have a few because I know they listen. If you're listening, the ones that I've met with that I really like in the Chicago area, we still like you. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But we meet so many of these, these bigger, larger organizations, which it sounds like you're working in. So great that they're making these steps. What's, why isn't this happening or what's that missing piece? Kind of what's stopping them? Yeah. If I'm being honest, I struggle to understand what's stopping them. Um, Right. I I struggle to understand where the breakdown is, because I think that we've got this mounting body of evidence. Right. And I think a lot of BCBAs are anchored in the fact that ABA is science and it truly is. Right. And with our science, we can use it to change the world. However, I think that with that comes a set of fixed rules that people think that they need to follow. Right. And they they 
people can get so boxed in on the way that things have been or, you know, what specific research has shown that they lose sight of, you know, and I might be biased because I work with little kids. So a lot of my examples will be little kids, but it's, it's true for all companies, not just little kids, but they lose sight of that tiny little human in front of them, Mm -hmm. right? And the family that they're, that they're working with. But I, I really struggle to understand why when we've got this mounting body of evidence, and to me that, that body of evidence is the people standing up, right? The people in the neurodivergent movement that say, I had ABA and it did not improve my quality of life, right? Those are real. There's no, there's yeah. no pushing back on that. If that's someone's perspective, then that's how that is, right? And I think it comes up to us as practitioners to look at that detach ourselves from it because our our first gut instinct is always to get defensive, right? And to say, but it's my science. I'm if you just follow it, it will work. Right. But they don't recognize that maybe the application of that science hasn't always been how it could have been. Mm-hmm. And I, I just I can't quite wrap my head around why when people know better, they're not doing better. And mm-hmm. I feel fortunate that in the state that I'm practicing in, Arizona, I would say that now there are way more people moving to this new approach than people stuck in the old approach. Um, you know, it's, it's been the real focus of a whole lot of conferences. It's been the focus of research. It's been the focus of new curricula coming out, which is fantastic. So Courtney, I would love to hear if, if you've experienced this as well, or have any other sort of insights onto that same question of why companies aren't adopting that. Yeah, I don't know. The, the One of the first things that were coming to my mind is like when you said, Katie, like these practitioners can be stuck in a box. Like for me, working with you as my supervisor really kind of allowed me to see that that was okay. Um, you know, I have really been interested in the Early Start Denver model. You like wholeheartedly like pushed me into continuing to follow that because I was seeing that, A, the play-based learning is what I love, how I see my clients thriving. And when you think about, well, you said happiness, right? They're happy. They're having a great time. We're enjoying our therapy sessions. And then when I think about some other practitioners that I've worked with, I feel like they they just don't maybe they don't have the guidance, maybe they don't want to step out of their box, but like, how do we, like my, like my question is like, how do we light a fire under these people's butts to see like the bigger picture here? Like, I love how Cordy was like afraid to say butts. <laughs> <laughs> you could say butts. <laughs> okay. Um, like how can, like, how can we help push those people who are stuck into this bigger picture of these are humans. I work with early intervention as well. If I talked about like, these are tiny humans that we are setting the stage for their future. And like, like any other kid, like Katie, I love that you said the happiness, right? Like if we're not having a great time in our sessions, something is wrong. And Mm -hmm. if you're seeing that your client isn't learning based on like bringing out the flashcards and you know all of the kind of like classic ABA stuff that we think about right like then we need to do our job and do better and and I don't like how how do we support those practitioners who aren't there yet because I I have seen and I continue to see people who they're really stuck and I don't know again like I was so lucky to have you Katie as my supervisor and like to be able to say hey this is great like explore this route because I was more classically trained 
I would say. And I'm very fresh. Like I got my BCBA in 2018. So I haven't been in this field for very long. Whereas like you, you have. And so I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm curious too, like what kind of pushed you, Katie, to be like, oh yeah, like this, this is maybe how I used to do things. And even kind of taking a look back and saying, oh, you know, I recognize that that probably wasn't the best. And so I'm going to now do it a different way, even though that's scary because you were very likely, you know, the classically trained ABA model. So like, mm-hmm. like what kind of like made you feel comfortable and confident, I guess, to like step out of that box and, and make those changes? And can we maybe, sorry, define what like that classically trained might mean for people? Because I'm guessing this is more that DTT, what people are pointing to discrete trial training, when people are pointing to harm and abuse in ABA of like, we have to sit more of this like hands-on physical approach. Are we talking that or an evolution from that that's pulling from that? Yeah, I think both, right? So when I think of being more classically trained, it it's that sort of, we're going to sit you down and drill you quick, 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 you know, teach you all of the things. And, you know, a lot of times those involve flashcards back in the day. And, you know, is there some value to that? Like, yeah, you might learn how to identify some objects and things like that, but that's not everything, right? It's probably not the priority in 99% of our kids' lives. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm anti-discrete trial because there are some skills, you know, when we're talking discrete trials, we're at its core, we're really talking about the practice of taking one bigger skill to teach breaking it down into smaller shapes or into smaller steps and teaching those one at a time, giving whatever prompting the learner needs so that they can acquire the skill and making sure that we're delivering some reinforcers to, to continue to carry that skill over. Um, So that's sort of, you know, I'm not saying that I'm against that, but I think Mm -hmm. that practitioners usual go-to is okay. You sit at the table. I tell you to do a task. I'm just going to use something easy. Like, matching cards, right? I tell you to match a card, you go ahead and you match it, you may or may not need prompts. And then I go, great job matching dump trucks, right? So, and then rinse, repeat for every single thing that we need to touch the kid. Boring. I don't want to teach it that way. Kids don't want to learn it that way. But there's also this, this old school training when it came to reducing problem behaviors. And, you know, a lot of our kids come to us with some challenging behaviors and it only makes sense. Behavior is communication. Communication is a, is a core deficit of autism. It's only natural that our kids are going to struggle with problem behaviors. And, you know, what our science teaches us is that if we can analyze what happens right before a behavior and what happens right after the behavior, that we can change that behavior because There is something, the consequence of that behavior, what's happening after is what keeps it going in the long run, right? So we can adjust the environment to prevent those behaviors from ever happening. And we can react in a way so that basically the child's problem behavior doesn't get them what they were hoping to get, and we teach them a better way. So in practice, I'm going to give you an example. This sort of loops back to your initial question, Courtney, of recognizing that something wasn't right. So I'll never forget, this was, I was well into my career at this point. I was probably, gosh, I don't even know, five years as a BCBA or so. And I had started my first clinic job and I was taking over this case and there was this little guy, cute as a button. He was about four years old 
And he was just, I called him a little Tasmanian devil because he was just on the move from one thing to the next all day. Like I just pictured this little spinning, like from one thing to the next. And it was great. We never had to go to the gym. You never got bored with what you were doing because he was just an active little guy on the go all the time. So I was taking this case over and I was watching an RBT implement, and I don't even know if it was matching. At this point in my head, I'm telling myself it's a matching program. It might not have been, but I was watching this RBT that's a registered behavior technician. I forgot that we should define this lingo, right? Registered behavior technician. That's generally the person. They should know, but yes. <laughs> right? Um, generally the person who's implementing the program. And I was watching her get him to the, to the table to run some flashcards. And the second they were playing and she's like, all right, buddy, it's time to clean up and go to the table. And he's like, no, she's like, I said, we have to go. So he's again, no. And he starts hoarding all of the cars that he's playing with on the floor. And he's like scooping them into his arms and she gets up and she goes near him and she puts her arms underneath his, um, like underneath his armpits and gives him a little like help to get up. Right. And at this point, you can see it in this kid's face that he's like, what part of no did you not understand? Right. And she's like, but our timer went off. It's time to be all done. We can earn them back. And she continues just like real gentle, you know, picking him up from behind the arms. So she sort of like half carries him to the chair. He sort of half goes. But now he's flailing everywhere. And she's like, good job sitting down, buddy. And I'm like, he clearly doesn't want to sit down. Okay, all right. Let me just see how this goes. And she pushes in the chair. And then he's pushing against the desk trying to get out. And at this point, she now is scooting her chair in behind him. And she's sort of like using her legs to like wrap around the chair to keep him there. And she's like reaching for the cards. And I'm watching this go down. And the BCBA that I was taking the case from was there with me as well. And I look at her and I was like, what now? And she's like, she gave the demand. She has to follow through. And I'm going, this isn't going to go well. Like I could, this kid is not ready to learn right now. So I jump in and I was like, Hey, what's he earning? And she's like, he's earning his cars in a break again. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, I don't, I don't think that that's enough that he's motivated to do this right now, but okay. First day here, I'm not going to ruffle too many feathers just yet. Let me just sit back and observe. Maybe I'm missing something. So this continues and she puts the cards in front of him and she's asking him to do things. And now he starts doing, I call it the limp noodle move, where all of a sudden his body goes limp and he slides like underneath the table. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the RBT is now trying to block him from getting out from underneath the table so that he can't play with his cards. And of course, naturally, fight or flight, this kid's ready for a fight. Right. So now he's on his back under the table. He's using his legs to kick the table up and over and he's getting at anything. And she's trying to like physically block and rearrange and prompt him to participate. And like at this point, looking back, all that I can think of is those memes that says never in the history of telling me to calm down. Have I ever calmed down? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. she's, right. She's trying to still prompt him through doing whatever the task was. And I'm just sitting there watching this going, what in the world? There's got to be a better way. And at that point, this was exactly how I had been trained. This is a procedure called escape extinction that basically, um, what does that say? It's bad. I think I burned the saying from my memory. Courtney, you might know where it's like, if you, if you place a demand, you must follow through, but it like rhymes. Do you yeah, know? What no. Mm -mm. 
No. Are, there, there was some well, sort I'm of- I'm glad that it's, it's been burned <laughs> yeah. out. As I'm listening to this story, I'm like seething inside, like, <laughs> make it stop, make it stop. Right? So there, you know, there was this, I can't remember what it was, but something about this, this phrase about basically, if you place a demand, you have to follow through. This idea that if you give up, the kid is winning. Mm-hmm. So at this yes. point, right? Yeah. And I'm like, why are we in a power struggle with a four-year-old yes. or three-year-old? However old a four-year-old. Yeah. Right. Who why? doesn't have the consciousness of a grown adult. Yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly. Regulation skills to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So somewhere in this whole mess, the kiddo manages to get up and run from the room, which I can't blame him, right? Like at this point, he's scratched people. He's bit people. He's blocked. The RBT is looking defeated. The BCBA is trying to coach the RBT on this. And in walks the clinical director to try and help. So he makes it like halfway into, we had like a shared, I don't know, it was like a big common area outside his therapy room. And he runs out to there and she like blocks him, stops him and is like, oh no, you have to go back to your room. So he drops to the floor. So then she's kneeling behind him so that he can't get further away from the room. And she's pointing at the room going, go to room, go to room go to room. And I'm like, what is that? Just over and over again. And the BCBA goes, oh, that's a procedure called a nag prompt. The idea is that he's going to get sick of the nagging and he's going to follow through. So needless to say, I'm over here just dying. Yeah. Right. What? Right. Right. So I'm, I'm watching this play out hours later. The kiddo's mom is there to pick him up. He is still very escalated. The center is destroyed. And at that point, I'm like, so we were so concerned with not letting him win, but like it's five o'clock and he's going home. Like he won y'all. Yeah. He won. Right. How is this going to go tomorrow? So I, that was the day that stands out to me is the day that I was like, there's no, there's no way we're doing this. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I had that panicked moment afterwards of, oh crap what else are we going to do instead, right? How can I write a behavior plan that one, my company is going to approve, my clinical director is going to sign off on, the insurance company is going to be okay with, and I can say is effective, right? So as a BCBA, Mm -hmm. I was like, if I take out all of the things that we've been trained to do, Mm -hmm. I have no idea what to do instead that is still considered ABA. And that sort of really uncomfortable, like, oh my goodness, what, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Sat with me for a really long time. And sometimes it still sits with me. I still have tricky cases that I go, I know we're not doing that, but what are we doing instead? Mm-hmm. And so anyway, that was sort of the, the motivation that fueled me to go, I don't understand why we couldn't have when he started the second that he started hoarding his cars and saying no go, oh, I see that you need more time with your cars. Do you want three minutes or do you want four more minutes? And like prompt him to advocate appropriately, right? Like just ask for the more time and you can have more time because I guarantee you we would have gotten more learning done in that session, allowing him that extra time and building the relationship and the trust. All that he learned that day was that he can't be trusted with us. We're going to send him to an escalated state. Like very behaviorally, like if I don't want to do something again, if I just keep it up long enough until my mom comes, mom will come and rescue me. Like we don't want that to ever be the case where a child is looking for their parent 
to rescue them. Like, mm-hmm. I'm never happy for parents when this happens, but I'm happy for us a little bit when it's time for kids to go home now in my clinic and we'll go and we'll let them know, hey, buddy, mom's here. And they get a little bit like, oh, yeah. I'm still playing. Oh, yeah. Right? That's, yeah. To me, that means that we had a successful day, right? We want you to go home and have fun with your parents for sure. And every time they walk yeah. through the gate to their parents, they're always thrilled to see them. But it's always reassuring to me that the kids aren't, oh my God, get me out of here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, there's just so much in there to unpack that. I mean, <laughs> we've talked about a lot on this podcast. I think an area that I'm hoping ABA is growing into is that dysregulation component. Like you're saying, like if we're not regulated, we can't learn. You want to teach a skill and you're getting into this power struggle with a four-year-old and which I will say I've been there. So Courtney and I started working together at a school that was a hundred percent ABA based. And I would say like pretty old school ABA. Oh yeah. Like, like real, there are a lot of situations that I'm like, that was a hundred percent avoidable. Yeah. Like every situation I'm like, Mm -hmm. that was avoidable because we just needed to drop the demand for a minute. And I think the biggest thing is that there's not a focus on regulation first of am I in a state where I can learn this skill for true acquisition and functional transfer because and then the same like you're saying with flashcards maybe that's a means to an end for something specific but what does that functionally look like in the real world if I'm matching dump trucks on flashcards you're like this kid has cars I'm like match the cars match the cars exactly like you have them sitting there okay what cars are all small what are your mm-hmm. trucks let's match the trucks together truck races wee! like mm-hmm. all of these things that you can do and i feel like the regulation component gets missed even though one of the bases of the function of behavior is sensory like that is such something that is taught too i know it was taught to me when i was learning the basis of behavior um and and that's frustrating that that gets missed and mm-hmm. And the fact that, like you're saying, such that emphasis on self-advocacy in the episode that listeners hopefully maybe heard previous to this is being released tomorrow, but it will now be in the past by the time they're hearing this. Don't you love how podcasting time works? (laughs) (laughs) We talked about a really heavy topic, which I kind of gave Katie a preview of, of the importance of, of mental health and neurodiversity too. And I think that's the other component is you were teaching your client like the value of their voice in that moment. And like you're saying, there can't be any trust. And then that, you know, how does that affect your self-worth? If you're saying no, and then someone is not giving you any autonomy around that. And I I get, yeah, my dog agrees. She's like, yeah. heck? <laughs> I get that no one wants to quote unquote, let the four-year-old win. I do get that. I get that you're like, oh, come on, dude. Like you can do this. It's okay. But what are we teaching these children? Like you're saying, you're watching it and you're like, what am I, what is he learning? Not just the skill, but he's learning that adults don't listen to me, that my voice doesn't matter, that I'm not important. And when we think about the clients that we support and the social cognitive struggles that come with that, how much then is that, you know, imprinting on them of, well, no one will listen to me and my voice doesn't matter to anyone. And how is that impacting their long-term mental health? Like it's, it's just crazy that we forget how vital our role is and how much we shape those little minds for better or for worse. 
So it's not surprising when these autistic adults are coming forward saying, yeah, (laughs) saying, you know, I was ignored. I was harmed. That was very traumatic. I, I like that would be traumatic. That would be. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, think about like, we're putting, we're teaching these kids, like we're, we're putting them in a dangerous situation in the future also. Like that's why, and Katie had mentioned this before, like this big push for ascent right like this is so important because if this client child was in a dangerous situation where they were saying no 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 stop 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 we can all potentially think about some situations and the adult isn't listening like hello you know what I mean like that's so scary that's Mm -hmm. so scary and this is in therapy where we're supposed to be teaching them, like, it's great to advocate, teaching them different strategies to advocate, you know, like, when we think about, like, you were saying escape, right, like, escape is one of the functions of behavior, we want them to be able to escape situations, and we, it's our job to teach them appropriate functional ways to do that, like, it's, Mm -hmm. that's what we want, um, Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, right, we don't want kids learning that if they say no, stop, whatever, that they're not going to be listened to. But more so than that, we also don't want our kids to learn that they have to follow every direction that an adult gives them. Yeah. You know, I remember old school ABA, we used to have programs where, you know, it was all about following adult directions. And a big emphasis of that was really just compliance, right? Like an adult tells mm-hmm. you to do something, you should do it. That's very dangerous to our kids, right? And yeah. the last thing I want is for them to think that no matter what an adult asks them to do, no matter who it is, that they need to follow that direction. Yeah. Right? We want them to learn those self-advocacy skills and the ability to say no. And, you know, going back to your comment about ascent, Courtney, that's exactly where I was going with, with our thought before is that, you know, I feel so fortunate that now we've recognized that, you know, ascent really is a holy grail, everything, it opens up so many doors. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when we're looking at therapy, all sorts of therapy for kids, we talk about consent a lot, right? Does Mm -hmm. the legal guardian give you permission? That's one thing that's important for sure, but we never look at ascent. Is the is the learner giving you permission and are they actively participating in this moment? So I feel really fortunate that, you know, at my organization, that is one of our founding principles of care is that, you know, in every single treatment plan, it's looking at, you know, ascent for every single kid is going to look really different, Mm -hmm. right? How do we know that we have that child's ascent at all times? Mm -hmm. And how do we know if, if maybe they're withdrawing that? So that's part of every Mm -hmm. kid's care plan is looking at, you know, I'm just thinking of one particular kid right now, right? That if, if they're engaged in ascent behaviors, we're probably seeing them coming up to the, to the adult. We see them initiating social interactions. We see them smiling. We see them following those directions that they want to participate in. We see them laughing, right? We see all of these different bids for communication and a reciprocal interaction between the two. 
right? Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of that, we're constantly looking for when is the kid withdrawing that scent, right? If that Mm -hmm. child all of a sudden gets quiet and they turn their back and they start playing with their cars on their own and they don't want to be with us or they try and leave the room or, you know, some kids have those those sort of little warning signs that they're starting to get dysregulated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sensory, to your point earlier, Alyssa, definitely is a huge component for our kids. And I think that we often miss the fact that so many of those internal states like that for kids and this dysregulation can be caused by the environment that we're putting them in. So if we're constantly assessing the child's ascent and ascent withdrawal, the second that I go, oh, this kid is not ready for this, right? That's our time as a practitioner to stop and to think and go, what can I do that's going to get this kid like super jazzed to learn? How can I make Mm -hmm. this activity fun? How do I make it so that this kid has no idea that we're, we're, I put it in quotes, that we're working working. right now, Mm -hmm. right? For the majority of us, sure, once we get to school, you start to learn things in a more formal way. But most of early childhood, you learn through play and you learn through exploration, right? Mm -hmm. How can we be intentional about creating those opportunities for the kids to engage with the environment in a real playful manner and through exploration that is still going to teach them. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's always like the hat that I, or the, I don't know what the saying is, but that's what I hang my hat on, right? Is how are we looking at ascent at all times to make sure that this child has a voice, that they're able to self-advocate, that they are able to tell us no appropriately, that they can have some choices within their day, right? Truly, it does not matter if, um, I don't know, you know, like the order that we do different tasks in, or Mm -hmm. if they decide one day, like, I'm just not feeling circle time. I want them to be able to tell us and then to be able to find some alternatives, Mm -hmm. right? For all of us as adults, we do that a million times a day. If Mm -hmm. I'm in between meetings, Courtney knows this about me, COVID times, right? (laughs) Working from home for two years straight, sitting behind this screen, it can get monotonous at times. And as much as I love my coworkers, I don't know how many times between meetings I would be like, I need two minutes running to the bathroom, running to grab a cup of coffee. Could I have waited until after the next meeting to go to the bathroom? Probably. Did I really need that coffee? No, but I needed that quick break, right? Mm -hmm. And we all find ways to meet those needs for ourselves. It's just, it's unrealistic to think that kids don't need those same sort of breaks and those same sort of breathers as well. Mm -hmm. If not more, Mm -hmm. they have such a lower tolerance for attention, a lower tolerance for that consistent engagement. And I think something I've been really drilling with my team too, as far as ascent and their engagement in that, in those levels of play and those interactions is, you know, where are they in that play? Meeting our children in their level of play too. One of my newer employees has a client they're working with who she's telling me all these things she's doing. And I was like, let's assess where we are. And I'm like, I just presuming competence, presuming the complete capacity that this child has, but being realistic on right now, she's got parallel and onlooker play and you're asking her to reciprocally engage in every activity you're presenting. That's unfair to her because she's not there yet. Hopefully we'll get there. That's what we're going to build up. But to get there, we have to build the skills to be able to achieve that success. And I think 
really meeting our clients where they are has been something that's so hard. And Courtney, you had said a while back, and I'm really hoping that everything we talked about recorded because it is not looking like it did. And I am very now stressed about it. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> um, you said, you know, how can or why are these ABA companies resistant? I think one of the light bulbs that has clicked over the years for me is that education component. That at some point, Katie, you saw what was happening with your cute little Tasmanian devil four-year-old being like, nope, there's got to be a better way. And then you said, I'm going to learn about that way because I want to know how to write that plan. I want to know how to build that plan and I want to do better. And I think people are overwhelmed by the amount of education, training, and growth that it would take to do that, Mm -hmm. that they get really stuck, even if they want to, because our job is consistent professional development. It's consistent educating yourself and it's insane. Yeah. Uh, And I think it gets specifically in the ABA world, we get this added layer of complexity on top of it when we look at, you know, how as behavior analysts, we're taught like everything has to be very objective. It has to be measurable. It has to meet our science, right? So, and a lot of this is insurance funded. So I think a lot of practitioners worry that if you get into this gray area, it's harder to measure. We live and die by our graphs and by our data and they are useful. They can tell us if kids are making progress or if they're not, or if we need to change things, but data isn't everything, right? We're taking, you know, there's, there's a whole shade of colors in any skill that we're teaching. And I think that when we're trying to quantify things so objectively all the time to meet a specifically insurance requirements, it feels like you need to make everything black and white. You need to say, mm-hmm. Johnny will match 10 cars in 90% of opportunities across three days with two different people. And, you know, all of these different criterion that it gets difficult to say, hmm, okay, so we have to do 10 of them, but what happens if today he's really interested in those dump trucks, but tomorrow he's really playing with xylophones? What if I don't have two, you know, I keep using this matching example just because it's what we started talking about. But I think that a lot of BCBAs get stuck because that gray area can be really difficult to report on, to track progress, and to train others on. Um, I know Courtney has seen this in myself as well, where there will be times when I'm thinking of one specific kid that we did an assessment together with Courtney. You know, you go and you see the kid playing and only because I've messed this up a whole number of times in my career that I can look and go, oh, he's really interested in this. I want to teach this skill. I can go ahead and use his mat- his natural um, his natural motivation to play with these uh, like wrestling super figure superhero mm-hmm. figures right now. Mm-hmm. I can go ahead and to teach this skill in this creative way. And that's great and all, right? But it requires really being able to think on your feet and to think five steps ahead. Yes. Right? For new RBTs, for new BCBAs, that's something that takes time. And it's something that doesn't come naturally. I always thought, and maybe this is just because I started working in daycares when my mom ran a daycare out of our home as a child and then formally started working in daycares during high school. So playing with kids is something that for me comes fairly naturally. It doesn't come naturally for a lot of people. No. Um, so I think a lot of BCBAs 
honestly, it's so much easier to say if I run it in a discrete trial format, I can very accurately take data on it and I can very accurately train someone else to implement and to show progress towards my goals versus if I take this sort of loosey-goosey gray area intervention, it's hard to show that what I'm doing is working. So I think a lot of people get stuck on that particular spot. So it's about teaching our practitioners different ways that we can get creative to show that we're still meeting those goals and how we can, you know, sort of teach our, when we're training all of our RBTs, teaching them how to think critically and how to like put yourself in that kid's shoes and think about what you know about that kid and what they're interested in to say, okay, plan A is I can create a situation where I can test this skill using what we're playing with now. But if I can't, I also know that he's really interested in dinosaurs or whatever that other thing is. I can pivot and I can go to my plan B and I can get him engaged in this activity and then I can present whatever learning opportunity I have that way. So I think yes. there's, just, there's so much going on. Yeah. I'm like cheering inside for what both of you guys have said because this is like spot on. This is like why I went to the ESDM. That's like my primary focus. And only a few, maybe like a handful, not even a handful, two or three people at my company are wholeheartedly using the ESDM. And that's because it's hard. There is 10 times extra training that goes into um, training your team on it writing the programs on it, the creativity that you need to have in running programs like that is insane. And people like, I think you both said it, like people just, I mean, I don't want to say take the easy way out, but it's easier. Right. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. If you're in a, if you're working for a company that sadly like has a high, um, client to clinician ratio also like you're tired, you don't want to spend an extra, three to five hours per week potentially training your team on these principles it's insane you're exhausted your team is going to be exhausted at that point too like it's and this is like this is where it like we need to go back to do we reevaluate like the education when it comes to going to school for ABA like what needs to be changed here because you know what I mean like it's like you're bringing up my favorite qualm that I have with ABA across the board so for listeners listening I feel like we said this at the beginning of the podcast the goal of coffee and therapy is meant truly to be this roundtable where we have these discussions and we bridge the gap and we talk about these gray areas and we see both sides. But there are things about ABA that that do really bug me that we've talked about on the podcast before. And this is going to that thing where the RBTs don't have the education that we need them to have to implement. Because, and another thing that I am certain ABA is seeing because we're seeing it in the entire world is you're going to be, you're understaffed and it's only going to get worse. Mm-hmm. These individuals are not compensated the best because it's, mm-hmm. it's an entry level job, but it's really hard work. It's physically and emotionally yes. demanding. You have a high turnover rate. So even if you have a BCBA like Katie, like Courtney that you're listening to who are, you know, beautiful humans who care there, you can hear that they care about these kids and they spend all this time training on the early start Denver model. And then you have a team member who leaves after six months. Mm, yeah. Like, 
that's not sustainable. And it's yes. happening everywhere. It's happening to me, right? It's happening. And like, there's only so many music therapy companies. Where are you going? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, does the education need to be adjusted? Like, does it need to not be the pyramid model of BCBAs at the top with RBTs implementing the program? But then you can't serve as many kids, right? It's six of one, half dozen of another. Mm-hmm. I don't have an answer, but that's that's one of my biggest qualms. Courtney knows that I'm like, mm-hmm. you have these people implementing the therapy who can be Joe Schmo from the mm-hmm. corner with only some companies, eight hours of training. Mm-hmm. And it's like- that's Crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Right? Crazy. It's crazy. Oh. And I think it's, it's a huge- it's a huge problem in terms of our entire industry. And I'm going to use just the the health insurance funded ABA as an example here. I know we see it in all fronts, but you know, we've got this major supply and demand problem. There are so many kids and not even kids, humans that need ABA and that should qualify for ABA. And there are relatively few practitioners by just by default, right? I think, actually, I have not checked how many BCBAs there are in the world at this point. Um, and we haven't either, because we've even brought this up. There's 10,000 music therapists in the US. So I said, there's probably got to be like at least 100,000 BCBAs across the US. Right. Um, Courtney, wish- do do that Google search. Yeah, I'm right. that's what I'm doing right now. I, right? I would love to see that data. But, you know, I'm thinking even just in the state that I'm in, there are roughly 700 BCBAs my company alone, we service 300 kids. And we're facing this problem where, you know, thinking about the BCBA model, they don't just grow on trees, right? It's a master's degree. It's a 2000 hour practicum. It is not the people getting their BCBA are not someone who could say, I want to do this next week or next year or whatever, and get uh, all of that training. Okay. So Courtney found it 48,000 BCBAs in the U.S. as of 2021. Wow. I really would have thought more. Wow. It's not a lot. And the vast majority of BCBAs are brand new in the field. Um, you know, yeah. I think, I think I read a statistic. Don't quote me on this as truth, because this is fair, just fair. What I have in my head, but I think I remember hearing that about 50% of BCBAs are in their first year. That's just, it's, it's astounding. So it's, there's two sides to that coin, right? It's fabulous to see more people entering the field, but it also leaves this gap where folks who are still getting their footing and learning their role are now responsible for the training on these RBTs that, you know, when we look at the the health insurance funded model, RBTs can't be paid nearly what they should for the job that they do. They have an incredibly difficult and incredibly rewarding but highly technical, highly skilled role that you can't, it's not like other entry level jobs where you can go and you can sort of figure it out, right? Like you have to be an amazing human to be a great RBT. So we know that if RBTs were to get paid what they truly deserve, it would tank our entire medical system, just the cost that's involved in it, right? There's there's no way. And I think that that's where we're running into problems now is I see this time and time again, where RBTs fall into a couple buckets. Either they are they enter the field, one, because they are interested in working with kids, not really sure what ABA is, 
that maybe pays a little more than like daycares or a paraprofessional job and they decide to give it a try or they have seen the effects of ABA and the amazing work that it can do for kids. Maybe they have a family member on the spectrum or, you know, whatever, a kid, um, and they're passionate about helping our community and they jump on the bandwagon. Or we get people in related fields who are coming as a pass-through job. Those are the folks who are like in school to be a speech therapist or an occupational therapist and decide to do it for a year or two while they're in school. And then we get the last group that are super passionate, want to be BCBAs, and they're always fabulous. And the hardest part is that you never get to keep them as an RBT for long because mm-hmm. they're on to bigger and better things. Yep. And right, the, the common theme with this is that it's very, very, very rare to have an RBT practicing who has been an RBT for more than probably a year or two, mm-hmm. right? It's generally a pass-through role. And with that, I think it it puts this demand on, so let me start there. It's a very demanding role. And then on top of that, it can also be a very challenging role. You know, it's very emotionally draining. Yeah. It's very, it can be difficult when you're getting kicked and bit and spit on or whatever. Mm-hmm. It can be difficult when, you know, half of your team is calling out and you're consistently picking up the slack for them. Yeah. And, right. In this huge, you know, inflation and recession that we're seeing, the cost of living is going up. Like at this point, you know, I've had people, RBTs tell me, this is a really draining job. I love it. And I'm at the point in my life where I could make the same amount of money working at Chick-fil-A. I just yep. need that mental yep. break, right? <laughs> and it's sad to see because our community needs us. Mm-hmm. So there's this huge global, global ecosystem that the ABA field is working within that makes it very difficult to practice this sort of ABA that's really intensive, that gives tons of training, that is able to attract and retain and continue growing all of these great RBTs that are really needed to gain consistency. And, you know, I think that agencies are are pushing and trying to get creative to meet that need, at least the good ones, as best yeah. they can. Um, you know, I see the shift to companies actually requiring RBTs. There are some companies where they will just take behavior technicians uh, yeah. who don't have the RBT credential because they don't want to invest in the training, you know, and it's getting to the point we're going through at least the 40-hour training, demonstrating competency on just general ABA principles, and then going through and also demonstrating competency on implementing all of the patient's programs is becoming more of the norm, which is fantastic. Um, I love seeing that we're heading in that direction and that we're getting folks better training, but you are totally right that it's it's a common barrier and Every time a BCBA has a teammate leave, it's like a it's like a kick to the gut, right? When you've invested so much yes. time and energy yeah. um, into that. And to Courtney's point earlier, sometimes you just can't. A lot of mm-hmm. companies have to give BCBAs bigger caseloads. And as much as even if they wanted to train them all up and to get all of this, some companies you just you just can't. So I think yeah. it's important for us as practitioners to really gravitate towards those places who are going to set you up for success, make sure that you have a smaller caseload, mm-hmm. make sure that you can get in there and provide the hours that you need for the patients that you need and try and reduce all of the administrative and operational and HR sometimes load that a lot of companies places on BCBA. So you can truly get in there, spend the time with your staff, 
get them all trained up and, and do the best that you can with what you have, because some major changes are needed. But I also recognize that in this giant global industry that we're <laughs> in, we get to take baby steps. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the problem of the healthcare system as a whole, right? That the people doing the work deserve to be compensated for that work, but there's not enough financial revenue to do that. The people who benefit from the services right, are getting the funding from insurance companies. So we're beholden to them. As a music therapist, we're not billable through insurance. So anything I do is private pay, which has pros and cons, right? Because when you're billing insurance, now you're paying for that layer of someone to bill it. You're paying a lot of different things. Um, but the cost to your consumer is low. So I think that's also why ABA should and will hold such a place because so many hours and so much therapeutic work is covered by insurance. But insurance also gets to set how much that is. So you're right. These companies have no choice. They can't say, well, inflation has gone up. Compensate us more, right? Speech therapists like haven't had their reimbursement rate raised in over a decade. It's been $99 an hour forever. And inflation's up, what, somewhere between 8 and 40% is the data that I get on a daily basis. So I yeah. never know what's right. But it, it's so frustrating because I think that you're you're finding the answer right there, that we're stuck in this capitalistic system that isn't going to allow for the change maybe ABA needs to have as a whole to move really far forward quickly because it would require adequate funding, which isn't going to happen. So then the same people who can access those quality services are the people who can pay for any service because they're going to pay it out of pocket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that then the ownership comes back to us as practitioners to always maximize every minute with every patient, right? And to work to, to get ourselves out of a job as quickly as possible. You know, I remember the days when I, when they first started approving ABA as an insurance funded service, there were a lot of people who thought that kids would just have ABA from the time that they're, you know, diagnosed until they're 18. And it was going to be like having an aid to follow them all the time. Yes. Yep. And right. It comes to us to go, okay, this child is getting older every single day this expensive is, or this service is very expensive to the consumer and to the insurance company. We are operating in this system where there are so many families who need our help, right? The most ethical thing that we can do right now is to make every single second of every single session really impactful for that learner, right? To, to make it a fantastic learning opportunity to get the caregivers equipped with the skills that they need to get to teach those kids and to, you know, set our kids up to have a great quality of life and then to decrease that intensity of services over time so that we can then in turn help other kids. You know, I think that sticking with the status quo of saying, you know, like it's this unlimited service that's open to everybody and you can request as many hours as you want for as long as you want those days are gone right and it honestly it should have never happened um i think it was a little bit of the wild wild west when they first started approving aba for kids but i think that we need to look at um we just need to look at the services that we're providing and what can realistically be achieved because we don't want to get to a point where we're you know, doing this intensive service many hours a week, 
not having great outcomes. And then rightfully so, the insurance company would come back to us and say, you know, you're not having the outcomes that you need to have in this time. We're no longer going to fund it. Instead, we need to look at, you know, how can I maximize this time, this session, this minute with this learner and teach them every single thing that we can in this time? Because otherwise, I think that that's the only answer is to do do more with less while still giving great outcomes, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's a great summary to everything, too, of you know, if you're an ABA company listening and you're like, yeah, I want to do better, but I don't know how. Dang, Katie has lots <laughs> of ideas on how. Consult her right. in. Uh, Cordy picked the right the right gal for the pod for sure. Um, and, and it makes me really optimistic of, I know we all can be doing more. And I think these are really concrete, tangible ways to impact that change. And I, I really hope people listening are, are willing to put in that effort or willing to seek that support and that families also who are listening. I am certainly, if I work with families who, you know, are in ABA work with families who are very much not into ABA and, you know, every person gets to make that decision. But I know those families sometimes feel a lot of shame because they're told that ABA Mm -hmm. is bad, but they're Mm -hmm. having they're having a positive experience. So I hope this affirms for some people that if you're having a positive experience, it means you're probably working with caregivers and therapists who are supporting your child in these ways. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of growth that can be had for every profession, right? I mean, psychotherapy started with some seriously bad roots. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) if if we went back to where everybody started, we'd all be wearing shock collars and be testing people with no consent and all sorts of terrible, horrible chaos that Mm -hmm. we've grown through. So there may be still momentum forward, but I think there's a lot, a lot here that people can unpack and learn from and, and make the decision that works best for them. Yeah. hundred percent. At the end of the day, every family has to do what's best for them and for Mm -hmm. their child and for their life. Well, Katie, is there anywhere that people can find you if they want to follow up and ask questions or you can be completely anonymous fly on the wall? <laughs> yeah, I think LinkedIn is the best place. I should have looked for what my... What I'll my... put it in the show notes. Don't worry, okay. y'all. I'll make sure we have it. <laughs> Perfect. That's the great, that's the best place. I'm always yeah. happy to connect with people, to chit chat, to give, you know, it's only one perspective. I've only, I've only worked with the kids that I've worked with and there's things I don't know, but I'm always happy to share what I've learned along the way. And those things that have made me just stop and go, what, mm-hmm. what is happening here? And those moments when we've gone, aha, here's how mm-hmm. we can do better. Yes. Yes. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being on our metaphorical round table. Yes. Thank you, and, Katie. Yeah. We'll have to have Katie back for another BCBA episode yeah, for definitely. sure in the future. Yes. If listeners, if you have questions, you know where to find us, coffeeandtherapy at gmail.com. If you have a question for Katie, I'm sure we can get that over to her as well. And we'll catch you next time here on Coffee and Therapy. But for now, we do this silly thing at the end, Katie, where we go. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Coffee and Therapy. Keep the conversation flowing and follow us over on Instagram at Coffee and 
T. Questions, thoughts, ideas? Email us, coffeeandtherapy at gmail.com. We can't wait for you to listen in again soon.